Alan Kring Productions, in association with Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Autumn Semester 2022. Today, the, uh, the Federal Reserve, bear with me while I try to calm down this a little bit. There we go. Uh, the topic here, I have resources in your resources tab in uh, ReggieNet. There is a little video, it's 15 minutes, it's prepared by the Federal Reserve, and it's, it's a cheesy animated video, but it does go through a lot of what I do in this lecture. And then I've got a link to a Federal Reserve webpage that also goes through this, what I do in this lecture. Now that webpage gets into it a little deeper than, uh, I mean, there are some things that the Fed does that it just it literally kind of boggle my mind, but it's a good page for review of what I say here in class, but you'll be responsible only for what I say in the classroom. But do watch that video at least. It's like I said, kind of cheesy, but it actually covers the subject pretty well. Uh, one or two minutes here, we're going to look at the wonder that was the day on Wall Street. And I mean, it was, it was a hard, bare day. It, we got down there, excuse me, uh, they were all down about the, excuse me, the same amount, about uh, 1.5%, the Dow and the S&P 500, and the entire NASDAQ was down about that. Now, notice crude oil is really taking, a, has taken a dive. And there are a couple of factors in that, but it's well down below that uh, trading band of 82 to 89. It's in the $76 and a half range right now. It tried to rally. It was way down earlier today, and it tried to rally, but the rally, as you can see, fizzled out at the end. So that means that you'll probably see gas prices within the week down maybe 269, 279 a gallon. So, and the main thing is that even when OPEC plus said, well, we're going to cut the supply of oil to bring the price back up. Well, go ahead and do that. What happens is they have to produce more oil to get the same amount of revenue. So we have oil in the pipelines. We have oils on the high oil on the high seas, oil coming out of the wells in the Middle East and other places. We're also now getting friendly with Venezuela again, which is a great resource for oil. So it's uh, that those awful gas prices were temporary, as we all, as those of us who are older know. And so look forward to some lower gas prices for the holiday season. Now gold and silver were down too. So the equities were down, selling uh, in uh, the equities. Uh, metals are down. There was selling of those. And so now here we going over here to the bonds. Bond yields were up, which means bond prices were down. So there was selling in the bond market. So it looks like the heavies were getting out of everything and putting their money into cash. More or less kind of a wait and see sort of attitude uh, right now about the, uh, what's going to happen. And we'll talk about some of the dynamics uh, of what's happening in the lecture today. The Federal Reserve has so much power over the economy and even in the short run over the stock market. But as you can see, the Nikkei started, took a plunge early and it never recovered from that. So it ended down. And the FTSC in London, it went down and then it was trying to recover through the day. By the mid-afternoon, it had made it into positive territory, but it just couldn't hold it. And by the end, the bears had taken over again. So the whole world was in a grouchy mood today for some reason. Uh, it's just one of those days, sometimes you can't tell what, why things are the way they are. Although the Federal Reserve did make a, uh, there was a vague statement that the fight against inflation is not going to end for some time. So that might have been why we were a little bit on the touchy side today, is that there's going to be no relief in interest rates for the foreseeable future. Eh, that's, you know, that is what it is. 
and so we can go on from there. Now, as far as the lecture today goes, I keep this on the lightweight side. This is good for multiple choice questions. They're low ball, level one, easy questions. I'll even tell you a couple of the questions I'm going to ask you as this lecture goes along. But again, it's fairly lightweight. The his history of this, as I had already mentioned in a lecture before, was that in many developed countries in Europe, the central banks came about in the 1700s and 1800s. Uh, there were even precursors of those banks as far back as the 1600s. But we didn't have any central bank in the United States until it was passed, a law was passed by Congress. Oh, excuse me. Until a law was passed by Congress that mandated that we have a Federal Reserve. And that was in clear out in 1917. So we were the last people on the block to sort of get into the program with those kinds of, uh, with that kind of an institution. Now, this all came from the uh, Federal Reserve Act of 1913, I should say. Uh, essentially, it established a Federal Reserve Bank, a bank of the government, a central bank that would oversee the banks of the country. We had a history of just all kinds of nonsense in the banking system. It was just a, such a scam the banks were for so long, since the, before the founding of the country. So the Federal Reserve Act established a Federal Reserve Board Now, this comprises seven governors who are appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. Now, it has one of those governors is the chairman. Now, I've seen recently the term co-chairman, so they might have gone to two top dogs, the spokespeople for and the influencers of the board. Now, on a test, I could say the true or false, the Board of Governors is seven governors plus one chairman. That's not true. That's false. The chairman is one of the seven governors. Just know that I'm going to do that on the final exam. Just remember that. Now, it also established, established 12 districts in the United States. And each of those is overseen by a district bank with a bank president who serves on another on a big important committee. Now, over historically this was Ivy League old white boys and only in recent years has it begun to show some of the diversity of the country itself and that's all to the better because they are they can there are more voices more voices can dissent and offer alternative ways to uh, achieve goals. And so it's for the better that we now have at least a modicum of diversity within these, this institution. Now, these 12 district banks were established back when the country was a very different place from what it is now. The, the, the districts along the East Coast are very small because there was such a packed population and so many banks. And on the West Coast, they were huge. And now, the West Coast is populated much more than it was back then. So something like the District Bank of San Francisco has a huge area and a lot of more, more work than it probably should have. But there you go. Now, within this context, Oh, by the way, we are, I, I think I said this before, but we are actually near the border between the St. Louis Fed Bank and the Chicago Fed. We're about 40 miles inside of the Chicago Fed's territory. I take the students, my students up there uh, maybe once a year, well, not during the lockdown, but, and uh, we go to the uh, Chicago District Bank. They just throw offers of internships and job opportunities 
and you get paid very well, very comfortable life, and gov government benefits and uh, paid education as far as you want to go in your life. So it's a place, and you don't have to be a finance or an accounting major. They've got all kinds of operations. They even have education departments that produce materials and go out to schools uh, to teach about banking and financial literacy and all that kind of stuff. So there's all kinds of opportunities if you're looking for some place for a job in the city, uh, as it were. But now I'm going to bring over here, I'll talk about it a little more later, but within the Fed is the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC. Now, that video that you'll watch has a, it talks about the FOMC. It's a powerful committee. And the FOMC, the committee members, the seven governors are on it. And then five district bank presidents. Now, four of those serve two-year terms, rotating two-year terms. And then there is one permanent voting member. The permanent voting member is from the Empire Bank, the Bank of New York. There's a reason why the Empire Bank is always on there. The Empire Bank is where the domestic trading desk is, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. The DTD more or less regulates, controls the economy in a way. But I'll talk about that more in a little bit. But when you see the Federal Reserve did raise the discount rate, or something like that. That's the FOMC that made a decision to add liquidity or drain liquidity. They are the ones who modulate the money supply day to day, month to month, and year to year. They are enormously powerful in terms of what they do to the economy. The Federal Reserve just mumbled something today and the stock market took a dive on it. That's how powerful they are. And the flow of money that you're talking about in this is in the tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars on a daily basis, all swirling around. Hardly anyone knows that this is happening. You do, and a very small group of educated people understand it, but most people have no idea about what this is all about. So they make up all kinds of bizarre conspiracy theories. The Federal Reserve is controlled by the Freemasons or the Jewish conspiracy or uh, the aliens. I mean, they, they, they don't understand, they don't want to know, so they make up weird, completely bizarre ideas. But let's hope that you can keep from doing that in your lives. Okay, now, the original legislation gave the Fed three uh, duties. Three duties of the Fed. And they all have to do with the economy, the banking system. The first one that they do is they r regulate and supervise the banking system. Now, the governors regulate. In other words, they take legislation that's been passed by the Congress and signed by the president, and they turn it into understandable rules that the banks have to follow. The governors do this. Now, the supervision overseeing these regulations and impo imposing them on the banks, that's done by the district banks. So on an exam, I could say, which is true, the district banks 
regulate and the governors supervise. The district banks and the governors share responsibility for regulation and supervision. Then one of them would say the governors regulate and the uh, district banks supervise. So that is, will be on the final exam. Just know which way it goes. So there's two. You will not go home empty-handed from the final if you can just remember what I've said here. Okay, now this regulation and supervision. This kind of ebbs and flows. There was a time when the Fed, there have been times when the Fed didn't regulate very much. And also the Fed doesn't regulate all banks. There are banks that have their own regulators, like there are banks that are regulated by the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. There are banks that are regulated and overseen by the comptroller of the currency. There are banks that are overseen by state regulators because they're state chartered. There are credit unions, they aren't even in this system, they're regulated by their own body, regulatory body, and it's a mishmash. And it got to be a, a real issue back in, we had a near apocalypse of the financial system in 2008. And so it came to a head on September the 15th, I think it was, of 2008. And I mean, it was just, and of course, Congress calls all of these regulators in and says, what the hell happened? And um, it, they, that was when it kind of came to a head. There's this crazy quilt of regulators. The Fed doesn't regulate every bank. And uh, they're influential, but and then, of course, Congress said, well, we want to put everyone under the Fed. And boy, the turf wars began. It never happened, I guarantee you that. But uh, these, that supervision, just as a side note, every year, a couple times every year, I get these people uh, of supervision by these different regulators. They send me an email message saying, hey, we need interns. We need people for career jobs. What have you got? And I mean, you're talking about really good pay. Usually you, you're out in the field auditing or overlooking at banks four days a week, and then you get government benefits, which are great, and your pay goes up as time goes along on a regular cycle. So it's quite a place to work. Um, I have, I think, maybe about a half dozen students. They started, and they're just happy with uh, over, over many years with where they went. So that's out there, and you don't have to be an accounting or a finance major again. They take P, uh, majors from a lot of business subjects because they show you what they want you to be watching for and look at and all of that. And you work in teams, so you're all supporting each other. But anyway, okay, they regulate and supervise. The second duty they have is serving as a bank for banks. Every, a bank has to have a place to put its money and to write, write checks off the bank, and the Fed will do that. They'll say, we can do that for you. We'll be your bank. This, but the Federal Reserve Act specifically said that this Fed cannot be a bank for banks in such a way that it wipes out private commercial banks that do the same thing. They have to work with their competitors in the private sector. So, and another thing is that the Fed is at the forefront of technological innovations for the banking system. And they have to share it for free with all of their private competitors. Those MIRC codes at the bottom of checks, that was a Fed innovation decades and decades ago. And they just handed it out to the bank, say, hey, we'll all do this now. And uh, the ATM technology, that was Fed, and then they just shared it, the electronic technology with every, all the banks. And so all of this is the Fed doing what it's supposed to under the uh, Federal Reserve Act. They still make a, a boatload of money. Every year, the fees that the uh, Fed charges for its banking services amount to billions of dollars, and they just give that money to the U.S. Treasury every year. And also, as far as competition goes, I did not know the answer. Someone said, well, how many banks use the Fed and how many banks use private commercial banks? I called um, a 
former fellow PhD student of mine who works at the St. Louis Fed, I said, what's the numbers? And he said, well, in our district, it's about 65% of banks use the Fed and 35% use private commercial banks. And yet those private commercial banks make huge amounts of money too doing this. So it's kind of a model where government can actually go right head to head with uh, private sector and both of them do very well in the process. It's unfortunate that no one thinks about that as a possible solution to health insurance. The Fed has a plan that it can provide and the private health insurers can compete directly with it and maybe it would work like this. But no one wants to talk about that. Okay, bank for banks. Now, here comes the big one. They conduct monetary policy. The Fed conducts monetary policy. And they have three main tools. Now within these tools are uh, mini tools and, Mac and big tools. And I won't get into that in a whole lot of detail because literally, I mean, I, I teach how they, this works in upper level classes. And even I get confused by some of these. And the poor students are staring at me like I'm singing the, bus, the wheels on the bus go round and round. But I will give you the broad outline of the three different tools. But I won't go into the details of, of them. OK, now, these tools are put into operation by the FOMC. They meet eight times a year, and they decide whether the money supply is going to grow or contract uh, based upon inflation, uh, signs of inflation. Here's the thing. If the money supply grows, the, the economy needs money. But more importantly, the economy needs to have the money supply grow at the real growth rate of the economy. So in other words, if the economy grows at 3% uh, real, in real rate, the money supply should grow at 3% to add exactly the amount of lubricant needed for the machineries of commerce to work the way they're supposed to. If the money supply grows too slowly, we end up getting something called deflation. Deflation is absolutely horrifying, and we want to stay light years away from deflations because they are, can, can end a country, literally. Uh, so we don't want that. But if the money supply grows too fast, if it grows at a rate that is greater than the growth rate of the economy, we get inflation, hence where we are now. The economy, uh, the Fed was printing money since about 2017 at a very aggressive rate to keep us out of a recession that the president at the time was adamant that he did not want to happen. Okay, fair enough. And then, unfortunately, we got the lockdown and the economy started to really grind, so the Fed upped the stakes printed money hand over fist for COVID checks, for relief loans to businesses. Everything you could imagine was on the table. Print money like there's no tomorrow. The result, well, surprise, surprise, inflation. Real inflation, I mean hardcore inflation, because the money supply was growing too fast, and then it was growing way too fast. And so now the Fed has to turn that engine off drain the liquidity, the liquidity overhang, get it out of the economy. That's the only way to stop the inflation. The inflation isn't caused by greedy corporations. It's not caused by greedy workers wanting higher wages and all that. It is a technical engineering phenomenon. We printed money at a rate faster than the growth rate of the economy. So guess what? We're going to have an inflation as a result of it. So now we have to stop that inflation. That's where monetary policy comes in. 
Now, I'm going to go through these tools in the order in which they would be used. The least used would be the required reserve ratio. The required reserve ratio. RRR. Let me explain. You, sir, are a um, bank, uh, a, a wealthy person, and I am a bank. Now, you would not want to keep all of your money on your person. A highwayman could come and steal your money and all of that. So you bring it to me. I am a banker. Okay, now, let's say that you just come to me and you deposit $1,000. Now, I need to make a living, so I need to use that money. But I also have to keep some of it for you if you want to come back in and get some of it. So suppose that I set my reserve ratio at 10%. That means that I'm going to keep $100, and then I have lendable funds of $900. Okay. Now, I want to use that to make a living as a banker. So, what we'll do here is, uh, hmm. you, sir, come to the bank and say, I should like to start my own business. And uh, I say, well, that's nice. What kind of business? And, yeah, a donut shop. Yes, donut shop. Well, that sounds like a reasonable. I have $900, and you say, good. I shall take, borrow that $900. And then what you do is you pay this donut shop designer to do it, to create the donut shop. Well, she comes to me with the $900 she's made from you, and she deposits it in my bank. So now my balance sheet has expanded from $1,000 to $1,900. Well, I say, well, this is good. I put, I keep on reserve $90 if she wants to come back in, and that means that I have $810 to lend. Well, that's when you, sir, come to me and say, I should like to borrow money. What do you want to do? I want to start my own mail escort service. I'm changing my name to Sven, and I shall go out and I shall escort uh, people for a fee. And you build up your muscles and you say, see, ripple, ripple. Okay, okay, good. So, okay, I lend you $810 and you create the website with the Venmo and all of that for his, enter his enterprise. And he pays you the $810, which you bring back to my bank to deposit. So now my balance sheet has expanded by $810 more. And so then someone comes in and borrows that $810. So I put 81 on reserve and then my lendable funds are after that $729, which is then going to be, end up finding its way back to my bank and on down we go. This is a geometric process. Ultimately, the final balance sheet increase will be the original deposit, $1,000 times one over the reserve ratio. So that means that it will be $1,000 times 10 Uh, and that will mean that the total expansion of the money supply is $10,000. In other words, the money supply 
will grow on its own, autonomously. Just grow. The formula for this is always the original money times one over the required reserve ratio. This one over the required reserve ratio is called the money multiplier. So with a reserve ratio of 10%, it'd be one over 10, which equals uh, 10 times. If it were 20%, it would be one over 20, which is, <laughs> really? One over 20, uh, which would be 20, no. One over 20, God, I'm slowly dying on my math. And then over 5% would be one over 0.05, one over 0 0.10, there's, there's the problem. So it would be, for this one, it would be five times, and a 5% ratio would be 20 times. Sorry, I was getting a little confused there. As you can see, as you lower the required reserve ratio, the money multiplier goes up. So the Fed can actually, the Fed sets the required reserve ratio, how much the bank has to keep in the vault. And if it increases that required reserve ratio, it will slow down the growth of the money supply. If it lowers the required reserve ratio, it increases the money multiplier effect. So it grows the money supply. This is a blunt tool. It can, and there are practical versions of this formula that get kind of complicated, but the basic idea is the same. This is something that the Fed doesn't want to alter too much ever, certainly not to control the money supply. Sometimes it will increase the required reserve ratio if it thinks that people are going to run banks. Like after uh, on the attacks uh, on the United States on September the 11th of 2001, there was a general consensus that people are going to freak and they're going to run to their banks to get money out. So obviously you want to increase the required reserve ratio so the banks have enough money to give them. The strange thing was that it didn't happen. The people didn't freak out and run to their banks. There was no run on the banks. People more or less, you know, just the attacks happened. They said, well, that sucked, but they didn't run and grab their money out of the banks. So, but the uh, other part of this is that I, and I didn't even know this until not that many years ago, there isn't one required reserve ratio. Uh, someone asked me what it was and I didn't know, so I called the San uh, the uh, St. Louis <coughs> Bank, and I asked someone there, okay, what's the required reserve ratio right now? And he said, which one? I said, what do you mean, which one? He said, we have different ones. And I didn't know that. He said, for banks that have $10 million or less in deposits, the required reserve ratio is actually zero. They don't have to keep any money. They obviously do, but they want those banks to have as much money on deposit as possible to lend out. Those are like small banks, community banks, and things like that. Then he said, I can't remember the numbers now, he said, for deposits above 10 million but below like 50 million, the reserve ratio is like 5%. For those deposits of a very large bank above 50 million, it's something higher. So. In other words, it, the reserve ratio is by tranches, T-R-A-N-C-H-E-S. Uh, for, for the first tranche, it is nothing. For the second tranche, it's a relatively low number. And for the tranche above that, it's a higher number. So I learned something new every day. I certainly wouldn't ask you to know that for an exam, but it's something to keep in mind that the required reserve ratio does go up as the size of the bank goes up. Uh, but one way or the other, that's the required reserve ratio. Like I said, it is a blunt tool. 
you move that around and the money supply just takes, uh, the growth just takes over on its own by the physics of the multiplier. So that's one that you wouldn't see the Fed playing with too much. Now the next one is where it gets more interesting. The next one historically has been more like a message, a signal. It's called the discount rate. Banks sometimes need to borrow money. Now the banks can borrow the money from the Fed at the discount window at the rate that is set by the Federal Open Market Committee. Or they could go to other banks in what's called the federal funds market, and they could borrow money there from other banks. And interestingly enough, that Fed funds rate is higher than the discount rate. But historically, banks often went to the Fed funds market for their, for their loans. They didn't go to the discount window, even though the discount window would have lent them at a lower rate. So the question would be, why would they go to uh, the intra-bank lending market, the federal funds market, and pay a higher rate than they would if they went to the discount window? Well, the logic of it was sort of, some, some people explain it like this. Look, you could come to your parent for a loan of $1,000, not have to pay any interest, or you could go to a friend and borrow for a high interest. You might want to go to the friend and borrow at a high interest because you didn't want your parent asking you why you needed the money. So there's that. But most of the time, the discount rate was more like the Federal Reserve, at its, at its most recent meeting, raised the discount rate by a quarter of a percent. That would be a message to the market that the Fed thought the economy was burning too hot and it wanted to slow it down by raising interest rates. It's a message. If the Fed said, well, we are going to dis lower the discount rate, that would be a message to the markets that the Fed thinks the economy is slowing down too much and it wants to juice the economy by getting interest rates to go down somewhat. Fair enough, okay. And if the Fed uh, says, the Federal Open Market Committee at its most recent meeting kept the discount rate at its current level, that would be a message that the Fed thinks the economy is on track growing at the right rate. So it's more like, uh, historically, it's been a message. So in the latest, over the past year or so, the Fed has raised the discount rate, I think it's like eight consecutive times. In other words, it just keeps on signaling the market, slow down. And it's, it, it's clear that this last thing, so the Fed, uh, Fed says, we see the fight against inflation going on for the foreseeable future. In other words, the Fed is saying, expect more discount rate increases. And what did the stock market do? <laughs> Through the floor like that. Okay, good enough, fair enough. But the discount rate, as a matter of fact, historically, the Fed has tweaked the discount rate by 25 basis points. In other words, a quarter of a percent if it was going to do something. I mean, that last one, it jacked the discount rate up, I think it was 75 basis points, three quarters of a percent uh, in, in one shot, which is really a message. We're dead serious. We want this economy to cool off. The economy is running hot. The economy is growing, and it is inflating, both. And the trick is, how do we kill off that inflation part of that growth without killing off the underlying real growth rate, which is darn good right now? Job openings all over the place. I mean, wages are starting to go up. Uh, manufacturing sector is doing well. Inventories are doing well. So the economy is growing, but it is also suffering from uh, inflation. So the Fed is got, has got to kill off that inflation 
before it gets too hard to stop ever again. But anyway, that's the discount rate. Now for the last one. The open market operations, the OMOs. And again, this is all explained in those resources in, I put up for you in ReggieNet, O-M-O, Open Market Operations. Now, in its basic form, they are a little bit, you have to think about them a little bit. In their practical form, they can, good grief, <laughs> but anyway, look. Here's the United States Treasury. Which is where our revenues from taxes come in and where our disbursements for paying bills goes out. Now, we run budget deficits now. We've been running them for some years now. Terrible budget, getting worse and worse every year. In other words, our tax revenues fall very short of our expenditures, government expenditures. So in order to pay the bills, the government has to borrow money. Those are what are called, that's what's called treasury paper. The government sells T-bills, which are short-term borrowings. It sells T-notes, which are intermediate-term borrowings, and it sells treasury bonds, which are long-term borrowings. And then institutional investors come in and they buy that paper. That is the same thing as saying they lend our government money. Now, who does this? Large countries, China is a huge lender. They come to the auctions and they buy this paper by the billions and billions of dollars all the time. That's one of the reasons we can't get too tough with China because we are their bitch. Other countries that have a lot of US money, how do they get it? Well, we buy their, they, we buy their stuff and they, we get the stuff and they get our money. They'll lend that money to us, Japan, Canada, Europe, uh, the Arab states, They've got our money, so they'll come back and lend it to us by buying the treasury paper. Large institutional investors like life insurance companies that have billions of dollars to do something with, this is safe stuff, so they will lend the government money by buying this paper. Other entities like, in, uh, like trust funds and stuff like that, and all kinds of shadowy entities are buying this, lending us the money because we need to have low, low taxes and high expenditures on everything from entitlement programs to war and defense on through to paying for infrastructure repairs. Uh, all that, we have to have the money. So we sell this paper, which is the same thing as it means we're borrowing. One of those buyers of our paper is the Fed itself. It prints money and then it goes and buys treasury bills and other paper. It literally prints the money and then it uses that money to lend to our government. So in other words, the Fed, it prints money so it has tons of dollars and it buys treasury bills, so it has tons of T-bills. Now you may be saying to yourself, now wait a minute, an agency of the federal government called the Federal Reserve prints money and then lends it to the government. So the government is printing money to lend to itself. Well, yes, but let's not talk about that. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, now, here's how it works, the open market operations, in a basic way. Here's a bank, here's a bank, and here's a bank. 
Now these banks all have dollars and they also have T-bills that they bought at the auctions. Let's say the Federal Open Market Committee at its regular meeting, eight times a year, one of the meetings, it says that we want to drain liquidity. In other words, we want to make the money supply go down. The FOMC makes this decision. Then that bank president calls his people at the Empire Bank at the domestic trading desk And when I say desk here, I'm talking about floors of traders, the DTD. And the order is put in, drain liquidity, drain it. So let's say that you, madam, are a desk trader. You have, and this is a little bit of a fantasy, you've got a nice desk, and in this drawer you have T-bills, and in this desk drawer you have dollar bills. No, you can't take any home with you. Okay, so here's what you'll do. I'm a bank. You call me. Ring, ring. Hello. Hi, I'm the Fed. Uh-oh. So what you're going to do is you're going to say, I want to buy, I want to uh, have you, I want, wait, I want to sell you treasury bills. You want to sell me treasury bills. Is that so? Yes, please. So what you do is you sell me a treasury bill and that, and in exchange, you give me a dollar bill, which I shred. That drains money out of the bank. Not as much money to lend. It slows down the economy. All because you sold me a treasury bill so I bought it, sent you the money, and you just tear it up. Now, suppose on the other hand, a year or two later, the, domestic, the uh, Federal Open Market Committee says, add liquidity. So that order is sent to the Empire Bank, which then communicates it to the domestic trading desk. So you call me. You again. Yeah. What do you want this time? I'd like to buy some treasury bills. Wait a minute. Didn't you sell me a treasury bill last year? Yeah, but now I want to buy one. Lady, make up your mind. Okay. <coughs> but I say, fine, whatever. So this time, you buy a treasury bill from me, and I send it to you, and you send me money. Adds liquidity to the economy. More money in the bank, more money to lend, grow the economy. That's how it works, in a nutshell. Now the actual mechanisms, this is one of the mechanisms right here, but they've got all kinds of wild things, like repos, uh, repos and reverse repos, and that kind of stuff. You'll see a little bit about it. When you get to that part of the article, if you really want to read about it, go ahead. But otherwise, it's just like, you know, this is, this is the mechanics of it. It's, it's like an engine. This is happening all the time. Every day, this flow, ebb and flow of money is happening to the tune of tens, hundreds of billions of dollars. And it's moving our economy. It's affecting us. And yet, there are not, maybe one, two percent of the people in this country know this is happening. I'll tell you an interesting story about this. In your lifetimes, the government has been borrowing money at a faster and faster rate, just hand over fist, to the tune now where our budget deficits are trillions of dollars, and so our national debt is just like even more trillions of dollars, the accumulation of the deficits. It's just insane. That wasn't always the case. There have been times in the past where we didn't run budget deficits. Uh, historically, uh, President Eisenhower, his last year in office, we did have a balanced budget. I think it was just almost balanced. In other words, the, 
We didn't, uh, the government didn't borrow money, but it didn't have any extra money. Now, at the end of Jimmy Carter's presidency in 1980, we were close to balancing the budget. We still had a budget deficit, but it wasn't terrible. And then the budget deficits got bad. Uh, the Reagan administration did a tax cut to boost the economy. And uh, there was also a lot of spending. And so we were in budget deficits again. But then starting in 1993, under the Clinton administration, the budget deficits started getting smaller every year. Until 1997, I think it was, we were running budget surpluses. It was more of a surplus in 98, more of a surplus in 1990, and even more in the year 2000. The government was actually had more money than it uh, spent, and more, than, more and more money than it spent for those years. It was just amazing. We were talking about God, we got, we got all this sur budget surplus. We can do things, you know, free college, space stations, you know, new wars on poverty and all this kind of stuff. We can really, really do great. Well, unfortunately, we got a, a president, George Bush, in 2001, who said we were in a terrible recession and we had to cut taxes to the bone. The long, up to that time, the longest deepest tax cuts in American history. And the Fed agreed. The numbers said we were not in any recession at all. The economy had slowed down to a, uh, to a slow pace, but there was no recession and there was no reason to cut taxes like that. And then we had two theater wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. Budget deficits came back and they never, we've never seen the light of day since then. It's gotten worse and worse, although this last year it, the budget deficit was smaller. Now here's the logic. The Fed agreed that we were in a recession when we weren't. Why would the Fed lie? Why would the Fed go along with a lie that the government was telling? Well, it's obvious. If the government doesn't borrow money, it's got a surplus. It doesn't need to issue treasury paper. It doesn't need to borrow. If it doesn't issue treasury paper, the Federal Reserve doesn't have any treasury paper to execute open market operations. Essentially, the Federal Reserve is taken out of the economy's equation of growth. And so the Fed, Alan Greenspan was the chairman at the time, said, yeah, we've got a real, we need deep tax cuts. We need them. All he was saying was the Fed needs the government to run budget deficits so that it can start printing money and buying those T-bills to execute open market operations. Because without T-bills, there's no open market operations. It, it, does that sound like something that was a good thing? Well. It was certainly a sleazy act, and if those deep tax cuts put us back into budget deficits. And there's one good thing about those, is we borrow more and more every year. The national debt is approaching, I think, what is it, $20 trillion? And the good news about that is that it's not my problem, it's yours. That's all I have for you today, I thank you.